open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid. An honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. I'm Gary Wirtz. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. In this episode, Drs. Blake Williamson and Gary Wirtz meet with Dr. Rupa Wong, who discusses her experiences and shares advice for building a business and brand through the use of social media. Thank you for listening. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Blake Williamson. I'm hanging out with my man, Dr. Gary Wirtz. We're here on Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Um, we are... Um, uh, a few months into our uh, new season, which is all focused on building your business and building your brand. And uh, really from the jump, um, Gary had someone that he wanted to bring on. And this is someone who I have gotten to know and respect very much, have learned from, uh, not just from her, her her social media presence, but also her business sense, uh, her practice ownership skills, um, all the different entrepreneurial things that she's sort of uh, known for and I've sort of learned about over over, over time. So we have uh, Dr. Rupa Wong here, uh, all the way from Hawaii. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, Gary. Gary, why do we have to have Rupa on? You, you, we, were, <laughs> we, were like, we have to have her. Uh, yeah. Talk to me through this. Well, I think uh, at the very at the genesis of this idea of building your brand and business, there was one ophthalmologist that I really I said we have to have Rupa Wong on because I think and Rupa, I'm not trying to blow smoke here, okay. <laughs> Um, I don't think we've had a pediatric ophthalmologist on off the grid before. So this is our debuting of bringing peds, um, and adult strabismus into the fold. So we're happy about that. But Rupa, honestly, I think you do something better than anyone else in ophthalmology. And, and when we talk about building your brand and building your business off your brand, I think that that is something that you have tremendous, uh, um, excellence in. Um, you've done it better, I think, than anyone. And honestly, I am so excited just to talk to you because I really enjoy your company, but I'm excited to learn from you and learn how and why all of this has come together for you on social media like it has. So if you don't mind, give us just a little bit of a background on you, yourself, your practice, and then maybe we can dive into uh, maybe the genesis of your online presence and how you built such an amazing personal brand and business. Well, guys, I'm blushing. This is it's such high praise coming, especially from the two of you. So I've got to say thank you first for those kind words. And yeah, so I'm pediatric ophthalmology. I met my husband. I trained at uh, NYU. So I'm a North Carolina girl. Originally, I'm a Duke girl. And then went up because I just really wanted to get outside of North Carolina and went to Cornell for med school and then NYU for residency, which is where I met my husband. And then we both did our fellowship in Boston, myself in pediatric ophthalmology at Boston Children's and him at Tufts OCB and cornea and refractive surgery and all that stuff, which I totally do not like. And our, our plan, I know, it is too much level of detail. I mean, I'm detailed, but 
when he asked me, where's that scar? I just, I don't know, in the cornea. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> that's my answer. Like, you tell me. <laughs> okay, before we go further, before we go any further, I have questions already. I have questions. We have to get into this, okay? So, okay. Blake, I don't know why it is this way, but I feel like everyone who has a subspecialty feels like everyone else should automatically think that that specialty in ophthalmology is the best. I think there's no question cataract or refractive. We think that we have the corner of the market of the of the cool specialty. But I want to know from your standpoint, what was it that drew you to peds and adult strabismus? Um, was that always the, the goal? Did you, when you started residency, did you know that was what you're going to do? Or what kind of got you there? Because I've never heard this Genesis story. And I just, to, to understand someone, I always like to get to the beginning. So either why, why ophthalmology and then why peds? So actually, I, yeah, I went into ophthalmology knowing I wanted to do peds ophthalmology. And I think that's, you know, we're facing a sword shortage right now of pediatric ophthalmologists in this country. So I think we've got to capture more med students earlier on in the game, instead of trying to convince them after the fact to head into the, the subspecialty. But I either wanted to do peds ENT or peds opto. I did couple week electives in both in med school. And I just thought opto was so much cooler. You could impact a child's vision from infancy, literally, even just something as simple as giving glasses or wearing a patch. It has such a tremendous impact on their entire life. And there's really nothing else like it in, in ophthalmology. And I just love optics as well, which I know hardly anybody does, but I do. So I thought it was just such a neat combination with the adult strabismus aspect, which again, the psychosocial interactions, you know, my patients, this is, my husband is a little jealous of my patients because you guys have your 2020 patients. They expect 2020. They want like perfection. My patients are like crying in the post-op recovery room because they're so happy that they don't have double vision or their eye, you know, they take a selfie with their camera. So I just can't put a price on that kind of, of, you know, ability to impact someone's life in either a child or an adult business. So I went in knowing I wanted to go into peds ophthalmology. I did an international elective in India for two months with a woman that had done her residency and fellowship in Iowa and then went back to India. And so it was really cool because she was basically American, but in India. So I got, you know, an A post level kind of little sub eye and I fell in love with it. And then when I matched an opto, I was peds all the way. Yeah, my, my new my new motto is um, ruining lives one 2020 eye at a time. <laughs> it's true. That's my motto in, in refractive cataract surgery. I, maybe I need to switch careers and do a peds fellowship. You probably, it's so rewarding. It is so rewarding, Gary, because Jeff operates on Wednesdays and I operate on Thursdays. And I'm like, oh, how was your surgeries? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm like three out of three were like crying. I'm like, it's like, what? I don't, I don't get that. Mine I don't get that level of gratitude. Reasons. <laughs> yeah, mine are crying for different reasons. So, okay, <laughs> okay, but that was Very that was good. a that was a tangent. But yes, so then my husband and I met. We, the plan was I had a faculty position. I was working at Boston Children's, but the weather was too much for him. So we ended up moving back to his hometown in Honolulu, Hawaii. And there were there's it's medicine's practice a little differently here. There's really not group practices. Um, there was just no job opportunities for us. So we bought a practice because there was no other choice. And that's kind of how that started with our ophthalmology. And then the social media was was kind of uh, something that happened about four or five years ago. And that was something that I was noticing a lot of celebrities giving really bad ad medical advice and not specific to eyes. I still remember I was watching, I used to watch this MTV reality show, um, The Hills. I don't know if y'all ever watched that show. It was, it was a good show, but 
Anyway, so one of the girls was saying, oh, you should give goat milk to your infants. You're like two week old infants. Like, obviously that is not correct information to have out there. And then I just sat and thought about it. At that time I was four, 41, maybe 42, something like that. And I thought, well, if th those of us that are in our mid career or even later career aren't on these online platforms, whether it's Instagram or, or podcasting or, you know, YouTube or now TikTok, right? If we're only restricting ourselves to Twitter, then we are not educating people where they are. And then they are believing a lot of the misinformation. So I started it just really to educate on pediatric ophthalmology and strabismus. And then I started getting more and more people kind of from a mentorship side. But it was really interesting because I'm in peds, a lot of my patients' mothers follow me and even their fathers. So I think because they see my journey as a parent and they see, you know, my husband's journey as a parent as well. And so that speaks to them and that resonates with them. And so it's kind of organically grown in that way. Where do you see sort of um, social media and being, um, you know, being an influencer? Where do you see that going 10, 20 years from now? Like, for instance, like, do you foresee a time? Because I'm trying to judge like what success is as an influencer. Is it financially based to where like there's influencers out there that make millions of dollars, right? Um, I, I don't know if that's possible as a physician. Maybe it is. I, I don't know. I think it's a long way away. Like, what I'm trying to understand kind of like, you know, how do we judge the ROI, let's say, of, of putting yourself out there, of documenting everything and making sure, you know, you're, you're you know, doing everything right. We, we, we have social media, you know, uh, digital companies that come out uh, in our market and charge three, four thousand dollars a month um, to do all your socials for you. You know, doctors that are listening to this are going to be wondering, well, is that worth it? Like, how, how am I going to be able to tell you know, whether this is going to good use. I mean, you know, and, and when you're working with companies, they may sponsor a post, but how much money are they really giving you? Probably not a whole lot. It's more about driving patients to your practice, I would assume. I think that's the biggest thing that that people who aren't as familiar, they're trying to wrap their head around, why would I do this? How can I know if I'm making money because of this? Should that even be the goal? You know, what are your thoughts with that? So I think, for me, and just probably like anything, you're, you guys are in private practice. You always want to look at when you're rolling out a new marketing technique, you know, how much money are you investing? How much time, especially when you're starting out, it's your time and your time is valuable. So you've got to put a dollar amount on that time and then you track it, right? You need your metrics to figure out, is it actually bringing patients into your door? As far as being an influencer and getting money for sponsored posts, I think, especially as a physician, we have to be extremely wary. And I caution medical students, anybody in healthcare, they have to be really thoughtful about accepting money because there are a lot of people that'll pay me 10 grand to do some random vitamin post, right? That's not evidence-based. And we have to hold ourselves up to a higher standard, even if they're don't necessarily do the same. And so for me, it's never been about doing the sponsored posts. I do them very infrequently, maybe once or twice a year, only if they're extremely mission aligned, if there's something that I would use anyway, medically, or if it's, you know, clothes or shoes, Hey, if, you know, Ralph Lauren wants to sponsor me. I'll take that money. <laughs> but usually they are not going to sponsor at the level of me being a physician mother. They would might, might look at me as just being an influencer mom. And that's not really what I'm hoping to achieve with it. So I think people have to be really 
cognizant of the amount of money. And if they're thinking, oh, I'm going to be a healthcare influencer. I think it's, it's difficult, especially with changing algorithms all the time. Platforms are changing all the time, which ones are popular, how to, you know, how to expand your reach. All of those things are changing and it takes a lot of time. I think personally to be, you know, really have a voice and to reach your patients or whoever you're trying to reach. I personally think it needs to be done by you and not by a, a third party company. Now, I'm still a big fan of outsourcing. I outsource a lot, but I outsource the parts that need to be outsourced. So I have a video editor that edits my YouTube videos. So, but I still film everything myself. I tell him the direction that I want with the editing. And then I, you know, go through the draft with him as well. I'm not outsourcing the entire thing to a company because when, you know, it comes down to it, these companies usually are not physicians. They don't know the, you know, the information, you still have to provide them all the actual material. And then if you're really paying attention to the, the platforms, then you're going to know how to craft the narrative and make it attention grabbing um, for your patients. And then you want it to be authentic and resonate. You know, I speak to being a mom and I speak to sometimes not having my crap together. And sometimes I do. So that seems to resonate. That's not going to, you know, go for you maybe, right? Um, I do weird little TikTok dances with my daughter and we do beauty stuff, right? So, but they, they, people like that because that's her and that's me. So I think that's the advantage of doing it yourself. That's personally, I would say, start doing it yourself. If you're interested, like my husband, no interest in it at all, but you guys have to see what you're actually, you know, passionate about or interested in. It's amazing that, that, that the money's there right now, you know, you mentioned like $10,000 to do, do a, a post or a video about vitamins. I mean, that's what you'd get flying across the country to do an ad board at one of the big strategics, actually, you know, and, and like you could get that from, if you can get that from a post or a video, that tells me that there's already a lot of money in that, Gary. I mean, it's kind of, I wouldn't even think that that's possible. That, so I'm curious how that, that would build. Yeah, I, I'm happy to uh, to do some vitamin uh, sponsorships. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I don't have the same mission, so that's fine. I'm obviously, I'm obviously kidding. You're like, I'm give it to me. Show me the money. Yeah, no, please but send those links. Those links right my way. Um, we'll we'll take the scraps, Rupa. No problem. Um, I'm curious. I so I was at um, I was at Young MD Connect Live, um, and I I was very interested in the talk that you gave. I actually did pay attention to uh, pay attention to some of the talks, but one thing that you said was that you have a certain person in mind, kind of an ideal person that is your audience. So when you're crafting your content, it's not like you're trying to speak to everyone. You really sort of have a target ideal person in mind. Can you talk a little bit about either how you came up with that idea and flesh that out a little bit about who your target is and how you create content? sort of towards that target and maybe even some tools, some practical tools that you use to sort of create the content. Uh, it was, the talk was fantastic. That's why I actually remember some of the things about it, but if you could exp explain that, I think it'd be really, really beneficial. I'd love to take credit for that idea, but I can't. That is kind of a standard marketing thing, the ideal customer avatar. Now people will talk about it as a community so that you are not neglecting whole communities um, when you were creating your marketing plan. And I actually learned about it in a little Instagram course that I took. And it was called, I think at the time it was called like Beat the Algorithm. It was a couple hundred dollars. And it's a woman that I'm now friends with who does a lot of great information. Uh, she's mommy labor nurse on social media, and she does a lot of information about pregnancy and doulas and just 
for women. She's a huge platform, like half a million followers and maybe even more, a lot of online education. And so that was where I was first introduced. So she talked about this course. So I took this course and it talks about the ideal customer avatar. When you, anytime, any of these companies, you know, Lululemon to Nike to Coca-Cola, when they are crafting a marketing message, they are thinking about who their audience is and who they're trying to reach. And we've all taught, you know, you think about like niching down and that's because then it makes it easier for your message to get across and for it to resonate with people. And so that's what I've done. And it's really easy because my ideal customer is basically myself, right? I, a mom of, so it's, it's, it's a kind of a no brainer, um, I'm a working mother typically, and who wants more information about healthcare, but doesn't know which sources to turn to. And so, you know, when it's outside of ophthalmology, I'm hitting Google too, right? I totally, when my kid is complaining the headache last night, I was like, do we, do we need to go get an MRI? That's my first thought, right? <laughs> like my husband's like, he's Googling. <laughs> How common is a headache in an 11 year old, right? I mean, we all do it. So I think to pretend or to tell people don't go to Google, that's not realistic and it's disingenuous. And we have to address the fact that honestly, we all do it. So it, when I'm creating my narratives, I'm, I'm taking all of that into mind. And I think that's really important. So you want to just be as specific as possible when you're thinking about the audience that you're trying to reach, you know, you can uh, consider who they are, what their ethnicity is, where they live, urban or rural, what their age is, what their education status is, right? All of those things just help you then make a more personalized message. Yeah, Rupa, you, you kind of, you, you kind of glossed over starting the practice. And that's one of the things I love about you is that you uh, own your own business with your husband, correct? And so you guys have a private practice that you own 100% of, as far as I know. Um, yep. How do you how, how do you how do you balance that with all of this stuff that you're doing as well? And maybe just talking about you know a lot, a lot of people listening this season are also interested in starting their own practice or are in their own practice and want to learn you know how they can grow their ownership or grow their business. Are there any? Any big success, you know, what's one of your big successful things that you did, maybe one of your failures when you were trying to launch your private practice, you know, any, anything that you learned from or anything that you wish you could have done differently? Uh, and then and what maybe something that you really knocked it out the park with and it was a, it was a great uh, choice. So it was hard, right? Because I don't have any kind of MBA or finance background. I've never run a business other than when I was 12 and made jewelry and sold it to my classmates. That's the only business I had. So, and my husband, same, no, nothing. And we took out a bunch of loans to be able to finance uh, the purchase of the practice. You know, we put in our own money and then we took out two loans to be able, two or three loans to be able to do it. And so I think part of it is just knowing that we are all smart and we can do it because we got to where we are. So if anybody's listening and they're contemplating starting either their own practice and buying into a practice or starting their own entrepreneurial side journey, I think the key is you can do this because you're extremely smart. You got to where you are and everything is figure outable. You can learn all the steps that you need to. I think probably the thing that I, a misstep early on was just being a, a boss, being a manager, right? Um, I was chief resident. So I thought, oh, those skills are going to translate real well. No, they don't. <laughs> and when you're a chief resident, you've got a captive audience. They have to listen to you, your junior residents, right? I know the culture is changing. But when, when we all trained 20 years ago, it was very different. It was very authoritarian, very top-down kind of a mentality. You cannot treat your employees like that. And I just thought, I'll show up and tell them what to do. And that's it, done. 
why like we'll all just go home and we'll make money and as you guys know you're laughing but yeah that is that's not what you can do uh so that probably was the hardest part for me was the employee management the hr and that took a, a lot of just reading books on leadership listening to podcast episodes right like like you put out like and being going to the AS, um, ASCRS, I always used to just go to the ophthalmic executive stuff. I would just go to all the ophthalmic administrator meetings. I, those were great sessions. So I totally utilized that. I mean, there'd be like one piece cataract talk. So I go to the one talk and then everything else, I just sign up for ASOA and I, that's what I did. And slowly I gained those skills, but there were de definitely times I'm sure I lost employees because I was working like a New York type chief resident initially, as opposed to a Hawaii boss, you know, and now we built the, the type of culture that we love. You know, I had a woman, my office manager been with me for 10 years. She turned down a job offer where she would have worked one day a week less, made 20% more and had much more flexible working hours. She turned it down because she said, you're my family. I would never do that to you guys. You know, so that's the kind of loyalty that we've been able to now create, but it took a lot of time. I think something that I knocked out of the park is, um, you know, it took us a while to build our patient base. We purchased a practice, but there was no pediatrics in it. Um, there really wasn't any refractive cataract surgery. He was a general ophthalmologist, he was a fantastic general ophthalmologist, which I think is also key. If anybody's thinking about purchasing a practice, you've got to pay attention to the reputation and the way that someone practiced. And that was important to us. I mean, he was such an exceptional like person and, you know, and an ophthalmologist in our community. Well, that's your that's your home that's your home run right there. Is that you? Yes. An existing practice. People think they're just going to hang a sign, guys. If you're listening to this podcast, do not. That's a bad idea. So Agreed. At the very least, at the very least, like you're buying that doctor's charts. They're diabetics. They're glaucoma patients. At least you have steady stream. You know, a patient flow coming from day one. Them, right? Yeah. Exactly well, from yeah. day one. Yes. And then it gives you, it gives you the time to get your feet under you, you know, and we didn't keep everybody and it was one person and we were two doctors. So that was actually a really good time because I ended up taking over a lot of the admin and the HR aspects of things. And I think that was another thing we figured out very early on what our strengths were and what the division of labor was. Initially, we thought we could just divide everything 50-50. And obviously that doesn't work. An employee needs to know who to come to. There needs to be a point person for certain things. And so, you know, my husband does all the network and the computer stuff and like choosing the EHR and I don't know, the IRIS registry. I don't even know what that is. He does that, like whatever. <laughs> I don't think I have to do it for Pete. So he takes care of all of that. I do all the HR. I do all the team building. I do all the marketing, right? So we found our strengths. I think that was also something that helped us. If you are joining with somebody, you need to make sure that your strengths and your weaknesses play out with each other. I think that's very important as well. If they're not your partner or spouse that you know intimately. Um, so I think that's, that's really key. And I think the other thing is networking and just putting yourself out there. I early on in 2012, actually, so it's been 11 years, we got named to the best doctors list pretty early. We've been practicing since 08. So we got named in actually 2010. But we got on the cover of the, the magazine that always puts it out in here. It's Honolulu magazine. And y'all have probably seen that. I always post that picture. But I got it because we did an ad. And you've just got to, you have to get a little uncomfortable. We always would do like a little half page ad because I knew that people don't read through the 300 names on the list. They want to see at least a little photograph. I always put my kids in that picture. And that's what people remember at the Honolulu magazine, like their, their editorial board, their ad board. And they wanted a woman for the cover one year and, and someone was just pitching my name and just making those connections and networking, I think is really important. And always just taking that time, no meeting necessarily, especially early on is a waste of your time. Just 
being kind to people, that's helpful. Absolutely. I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your latest venture, uh, about your launch of your glasses line. Um, we were talking at dinner and you were kind of tell, telling me a little bit about that. And I said, it's the least surprising thing I've heard all day was <laughs> that you were doing this. So um, I obviously say that in jest, but tell me a little bit about that and how that, tell me about the genesis of that idea and to where you are now, where you have a whole line of of glasses, uh, kind of designer high-end reading glasses, as I understand it. So, you know, that was, I'm 47 in the last couple of years, I'm a latent hypro. So only you, you cataract refractive people understand I can, that. We can fix that. Blake, we can fix, we can that, fix right? that. I know yeah, there was, well, I don't know. <laughs> Apparently I'll do really well. My husband says with a, with a nice premium IOL when the time yes. comes, but <laughs> Um, but, you know, I've been in readers now for a couple of years, especially since the pandemic, when I've been on my my devices all the time. And once we started going back out, I got everything custom made through my optical shop because I wanted nice frames. I like to be fashionable. I like nice purses and, you know, it's an accessory to me. It's on your face. It should be cute. <laughs> I want it to be nice and higher end and crystal and blingy. And every time I'd pull out my glasses at dinner to read a menu or to look at my phone, then my girlfriends that I was out at dinner with was like, well, where'd you get those? Why, why are, and they'd put them on, why are yours so much clearer than mine that I got from the drugstore? And that's what's when we talk about lenses and why there's a difference in, you know, different types of lenses and the types of quality of the lenses. So I just thought, well, there's nothing that's really at this price point. You can go to your optical shop, you can come to my shop and get a pair of custom readers of a plus 150 and it'll probably cost you four or $500, right? But if I could get some of the same Zeiss lenses and do it, you know, straight with the manufacturer instead of through middlemen and through the salespeople, then I could lower the cost. And then it's something that all women could have or men should they choose, but, uh, so it's been a process learning this kind of thing. Um, there's been bumps in the road for sure. I just got off the phone uh, with the Zeiss rep. I use Zeiss lenses in all of my frames, which is something I really wanted to do, but that does make it a little bit more challenging. I wanted everything to be assembled in the United States. That was important to me as well, but also makes it more challenging. It'd be a lot cheaper if I just got some like cheaper lenses, right? But that's not what I wanted to do. So I'm still navigating some of the little hurdles that go along with it, but it's been really fun ride. And it's been a really great way. Um, I started a hashtag campaign of age fearlessly because I think women over 40 were told, well, you're, you got to hide that you're getting older. You shouldn't, your glasses need to be hidden away in your purse and you yourself maybe need to be hidden away. And I just thought that we could celebrate that we're aging and that we're more confident. I'm a much better place than I was 10 years ago. And I think that's to be celebrated. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that. And I think you're right. You, you, What's interesting, I think, about your brand is that you're filling unmet needs that you see in your own life, um, whether it's like, okay, if I were, if I had a child with strabismus, what questions would I want to know? And, and how would I give, how would I want to receive that information? And now that you're going on this journey of presbyopia, you're solving the problem for yourself in a way that is sort of transmissible and, and scalable to other people. And so you're basically using yourself as your ideal marketing yep. avatar, right? Which makes it, exactly. makes it really, really interesting. Um, I love, I, I just love the journey that you've been on. The one question I wanted to kind of get to before we get to the end of this is when you were starting your, um, you know, your influencer status or when you were starting um, to really kind of make a go of being on Instagram or on TikTok, 
What were some early lessons that you learned? Not necessarily mistakes, but you can take it in that direction if you want. But what were some early lessons where you said, okay, either this works or this doesn't work and I need to do it a different way? I think early on, the the one mistake that I myself made and I see a lot of especially physicians making is we assume, oh, well, we're well-trained, we're well-educated, I can speak to patients, that is automatically going to translate to creating content. And it doesn't. And then to take that without being prideful about it and to say, all right, I need to actually study what other, you know, accounts that do really well. So I look, I was just looking earlier today at a pediatric allergist and all right, he does short clips. He's always moving around. He does it, you know, what kinds of things resonate, what kinds of things draw viewers and then being able to create the content in that way. And it seems like, well, that seems silly. Well, attention spans are what they are. And if you want your message to reach people, that's what you need to do. So I think not just presenting your information, but you need to be able to pay attention to the trends and to see what is the, what's the way that can engage people as well as kind of entertain them uh, in a way. I mean, we all know Dr. Glaucon Flecken, he's able to entertain, right? As he talks about these really serious disparities in insurance and healthcare and everything. Rupa, um, last question I have is, is uh, where is your entrepreneurial uh, spirit taking you in the future? Are, are there any kind of business ventures or anything that you that you want to do that you haven't done yet? Are, are y'all trying to buy other practices or, or, or are you comfortable where you are? Is there things outside of ophthalmology that you're investing in that, that, are, that are interesting to you? I'm just curious what you're thinking down the road. So not certainly not buying any practices. <laughs> we thought about that early on. Should we have a second location? Should we, someone offered me the chance to be CEO of a five practice situation, you know, and that just wasn't to me conducive with my work-life fit. Like I just, it was not going to allow me to be home when I wanted to be home to take my children to gymnastics, right? We've talked about that to drop your kids off at school. And that those things are important to me right now. So yeah, we're looking at different kinds of things. Um, I will in with a group of ladies might be doing something with just kind of the women in medicine group we had um, started. So I'm hoping to be able to maybe take that at some point, but you know, time's going to tell, we'll see what I have. A, I'm kind of a ADHD. So I'm, oh, I'm always doing like a lot of different things. So I never know what's exactly going to pan out. And I'm also fine with that. Like if the, you know, I'm, I'm very judicious about how much money I invest and how much time I invest. So if something doesn't work out, then it's not really that big of a deal. But again, also to remind listeners, I'm 15 years into private practice, right? So I didn't do any of this. Like when I was starting my private practice, I've only done it the last five years when you know, after I'd been practicing for a while and my, you know, my practice is able to, to function without me being right there all the time, which is where I was the first 10 years. So I think that's important to mention too. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that it is so hard when you're starting out, you want to do everything all at once. You want to be immediately busy. You want to have a, you know, a huge influence online. You want all these things. The reality is that it's building blocks and it's one step at a time. And if you try to go too fast, you'll fall. And so, you know, the quickest way is usually the slowest way. <laughs> agree. Totally agree. So, well, thank you, Rupa. Rupa, it's been awesome having, getting to know you. It's been awesome uh, these past couple of years that that we've gotten to hang and, and uh, um, ophthalmology is better with you in it. And uh, we appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. It's been really fun.
This has been another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Thank you to Drs. Blake Williamson and Gary Wirtz and our guest, Dr. Rupa Wong, for this insightful discussion on building a brand. Stay tuned for the next episode in this series.